This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Tennis Love Story, and the author is Sue Huffman Stanley, and Sue joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Sue. Hello. Well, this is about your love for tennis and your husband's love for tennis, but why did you write the book? Well, I have uh, several reasons why I wrote the book. Um, One was because, of course, I, I love tennis, and I was madly in love with my husband. And um, I wanted the world to know that I had uh, given a scholarship to Pikeville College so young people could get an education. And the scholarship was a tennis scholarship. And anyone who wanted an education could get this tennis scholarship at Pikeville College. It's a small college in Kentucky. And the the tennis scholarship was there, but it's not really publicized. And by writing this book, the latter part of the book is all about the scholarship. And also, I wanted them to know about the the, uh, tennis tournament. We have a tennis tournament. This is this year. We had it was the 36th annual tennis tournament that is run every year, and it was a great tennis tournament this year. Um, Another reason I wrote the book was. There was some inward healing that needed to take place even after this long period. (laughs) Uh, My husband died in 1973, and uh, this is 2009, and I still had some healing that needed to take place. And these are four good reasons that this book needed to be written. And uh, it took this long, but uh, I... I had to ask, you know, get permission from my husband, make sure it was okay with him and also with my family, and finally it was time to write it. So I finally got it accomplished, and I just also wanted the world to know how the Lord helped me so much go through what I went through with his illness and helped me make it through it. Well, we'll talk more about that, Sue, but... Tell us first, how old were you when you discovered tennis? I was actually about 13 years old. And, and how did I, it happen? Why, why all of a sudden tennis? I had this wonderful, wonderful relationship with my father. And he was the athletic, athletic director at Pikeville College. And, um, of course, he taught every you know subject in physical education and athletics and uh he was teach, teaching a course in tennis, and the tennis courts were right out back the college gym, and we lived right beside the college gymnasium. And I would watch him teach the students uh, tennis, and uh, I would—I just asked him. I, I just said, "Daddy, I want to. Would you loan me a racket?" And I would go out there while he was teaching and hit with a college student, and I just kept hitting and hitting and hitting, and finally I got as good as they were. And so he would use me as an example to teach his college students. And I would go out there with him and hit as many, you know, as much as he would allow me and as much as I could. 
finally I just developed this love and of course I knew that that meant I could be with him as much as I could. <laughs> so I just <laughs> developed such a love for tennis that you couldn't hardly get the racket out of my hand. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I'm sure that's a lot of great memories, right? Yes. A lot of great memories, spending all that time with your father and then at the same time developing uh, something that you probably never, ever thought of before. No. No, I just, <clears throat> of course, any time I could be with my dad was, was you know, a, a rewarding experience. And um, uh, I don't know, it just, you know, uh, I loved bicycling and, it, you know, just about any any sport in the world, but, but tennis just became the number one thing for me. Yeah, after I picked that racket up, it was just like an extension of my hand. <laughs> so along the way, you meet Kenneth Warren Huffman, who also loves to play tennis. Absolutely. Now, when did you meet him? How old were you when you met him? He was a few years older than you. Yes, he was four years older than me. Um, he would be out there playing tennis, but I didn't know him uh, he lived about a block away from the gymnasium, on the other side of the gymnasium, and I would walk by his house going down to the little town of Pikeville, and I would watch him. He would be washing his car, but, of course, he'd never speak to me, being, you know, uh, Yeah, you were 13, right? <laughs> I, was thir- I was 13 at the time. He would be 17. Right. And, uh, and then he would be out hitting tennis, and finally I just went out there uh, and... He saw that I could play tennis pretty good, and so I started hitting with him. And, um, you know, the more, of course, the more you hit with people that are better than you, the better you get. And uh, it started out that I would, it would be a foursome, you know, because, uh, you know, there were only, I think at that time, four courts. And you had to play, you know, with four people because, uh, there were so many people wanted to play. And then later on, we ended up just playing with two people, and it, it would just be us, and we would just keep playing and playing and playing, and uh, uh, we played every day that we could, all the time. And uh, it just became a traditional thing with us that, that we would go out there and play every, every day unless it rained. It, so- was, it was just a wonderful experience. So this is a story for people who love tennis. It's also a story for people who have experienced true love. So when did you know and when did he know that you loved each other? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I hope I don't start crying. Oh, I'm sorry. I probably will. Probably. One day, this, this is really what what changed our relationship around. Um, the courts were, of course, on flat land, but and there was an eight-foot, uh, I'm not going to say eight-foot fence, a probably, uh, well, maybe it was an eight-foot fence behind us because there was a very steep hill behind the tennis courts, which led down to a river. It was called the Big Sandy River. And... Um, uh, one of our tennis balls rode down the hill, and we had played all summer long, just continuously. And at that time, uh, 
had to go get the tennis ball because we were just about out of <laughs> tennis balls. And both of us went over the hill searching for that tennis ball. And, of course, my heart had been thumping all summer long. I mean, I was I was crazy about it. But, you know, I thought, my goodness, this is, I had been telling everybody, you know, this I am I, this guy somehow I'm going to catch, and everybody just <laughs> laughed at me. Yeah. But um, as we were over the tennis over the hill, he just all of a sudden said, "You know, dating someone like me is not like dating someone your age." And I my heart flipped. And I so thought, this is the first is- time you'd ever heard him talk about dating. Dating you. period. Dating period. Absolutely. I mean, Not one word had come out right. of his mouth or even hinted like he had any affection or any tendency at all toward me. And you're 13 now. And I'm 13 years old. And and uh, and I just said, I guess so, you know. And <laughs> he said, it's far more serious. And, you know, I knew it would be, but, and that was about all he said. And then we came back and kept hitting again. And then a couple of weeks later, it, I turned 14. And um, th- I think this was about the end of August because our birthdays were both in September. And he waited till I turned 14, and then he asked me out. And, I mean, <laughs> you talk about your stomach turning over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he's and 18 now, and you're 14. I'm, I was turned 14. He turned 18 the 30th of September. And I turned 14 the 12th of September. <laughs> well, he's got the same birthday, my oldest daughter. My goodness. <laughs> well, <clears throat> of course, my parents had always said that, you know, they didn't want us to date until we were 16 years old. Right. But because... You know, we, we we traded at his parents' drugstore. There were only two drugstores in town at the time. The Huffman Drugstore, and then I don't remember the name of the other one, which were right across the street. So your family other. knew his family? Yes. And probably Very. knew him pretty well. Yes. But, and and they let me go. I, I, was, I was just shocked. I mean, I begged and begged and begged, but, but I was just <laughs> totally shocked. Totally shocked, and uh, I, 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 I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And his friends kidded him to death. Absolutely kidded him to death. They would not quit it. Yeah, I can hear. Oh, I can yeah. hear it now. Robbing the cradle. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right in front of me. Right in front of you. Right in front of me. Oh my goodness! You're robbing the cradle. And I would never say a word. I was so shy. So how old were you when you got married? I was 18. I was 18 years old. And, of course, uh, I mean, I would have gotten married earlier, but I knew it would have been crazy, absolutely crazy. I mean, I, I was almost a straight-A student, and, and I wanted my education. And, of course, you know, we both knew that was not logical, and um, and I had a lot of growing up to do, 
because there was a lot of things, you know, I wanted to experience. And, of course, I loved being cheerleader, and I loved athletics, and and uh, he knew I had a lot of growing up to do. So I went on, fin- you know, finished my high school and, and started college, and uh, I was cheerleader in college and played a lot of sports. And uh, I made it on the men's tennis team. Congratulations. Uh-huh. I sure did. At the time, we did not have a women's tennis team, so my dad had to get go to a meeting and have, get special permission. Uh, he was athletic director, and uh, they had to get special permission to let a girl on the tennis team. Of course, you have to make it. Sure. You had to, and, um, you had to compete tried, for the position. Yes, you have to compete. And I made the number three singles. And um, and I, I I won fifty you know I made, I won fifty percent of my matches which I mean thrilled me to pieces because you're playing against young men on the other side and they're over there gritting their teeth <laughs> <laughs> a girl on the other side hey, oh no <laughs> this girl's probably good <laughs> I might be beaten <laughs> I, know. I know oh well and and I you know I they they would first just. You know, they would start out, like, hitting a little bit easy, and then when they saw I could play, it made them so mad they couldn't stand it. But then they would play really hard, and when they'd get beat, it would kill them. But a lot of them could play better than me, which, of course, they should have. But uh, it was a very good experience. It's very good. So the big test came when Kenneth got this disease. Yeah. So what happened? <clears throat> um, um. I wanted to get my master's degree, and um, we could not leave each other. (laughs) I had to go to Moorhead State University, and uh, he had a degree in physical education also. But, of course, in order for us to get married, uh, he took a job at the First National Bank, which turned out to be an excellent job, wonderful job. And... um, For me to go away to school would meant would have meant that I w- we would have to be separated for a short while, and uh, we didn't like to be separated at all. <laughs> so he got a leave of absence from the First National Bank for uh, just during the summer, and we went away to school together. And he started working on his master's degree at the same time, and he was sitting in class, and his face on his face it, it just looked like. You know, his face would just, he, he would, all of a sudden I would look over there because we would, we would take the same classes and he would be frowning and grimacing and, and I knew something was wrong and I would ask him and he'd say, oh, it's nothing. And finally he told me his stomach was cramping, but that wasn't it. And I told him as soon as we got back to Pikeville that he was going to the doctor. And so when we did get back, he went to the doctor, and our, our, our doctor was a friend of the family, Dr. Jones. And uh, he did some tests and uh, told us that to sent us straight to uh, Mayo Clinic. And uh, we went up there, and uh, within a couple of days, they had diagnosed him with colon cancer. And told him it was uh, it had spread 
to his liver, and it was incurable. And uh, I think I was, um, I think I was 23. No, I was, I was, I was 24. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and anyway, um, he was so brave. <laughs> he was so brave. And uh, they said they were going to, you know, give him um, um, all, all kinds of, uh, of uh, cancer treatments and, uh, and radiation and everything and uh, chemo. And uh, they would try everything they could to stop the growth. And, uh, and if it worked... Wonderful, but if not, you know, they did. They that was that was it. <laughs> and but they were going to operate and take out the big growth that was in his colon, which they did. And then when they took it out, uh, they saw that it had spread not only to his colon but also in his lungs and everything. And and so they took us in this little room, me and his mother and his uh, he was his brother, uh, Steve, was with us and uh, told us he had nine months to live. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, I needed to go tell him. I mean, I knew he'd asked me. Granny Huffman, she wanted to know if I wanted her to tell him, and I said no. <laughs> so, anyway, I went in the room to talk to him, and uh, we talked, you know, about trivial things, and then he said, how long do I have to live? About two years. And, of course, when someone says that, you're not going to turn around and tell them, no, you have nine months, because you want to give them all the hope that they can have. And I just said, yes. And he came back to Pikeville, and <laughs> he handled it better than, you know, most people could, because he came back, and... Uh, of course, rested up for the surgery and everything. But he would not give up. He went back to work <laughs> and worked four hours a day. Of course, when his hair would fall out, he bought this little topee. <laughs> he went to work and he put it on and walked in the bank and everybody died laughing. <laughs> and he would just make a joke of it. I mean... <laughs> wow. I think it's how's that pronounced? Toupee. Yes. Uh, and he just—he was just making a joke of it. He was—he was a jokester anyway. So and then he, he would—he would just come back home, and uh, he would still go out and hit tennis. I mean, he couldn't play as hard as he did, you know. But he would still come back and hit tennis some, and he would uh, take our little son out to the gym and run lines with him. Because he loved basketball. Not as much as tennis, but that was his second favorite. And he'd take him out there and run lines with him and shoot some basketball. And he'd even take him to the tennis courts and hit some with him. And uh, he didn't give up till the last two weeks when he couldn't hardly move, you know. So how long did he live? <clears throat> um, I'm 11 months. 11 months? You were very young. Hard to even know how to respond to you right at the moment, but I'm sure that, as you say, writing the book and talking about it has helped you. Well, you can tell. <laughs> right. So in the process, you set up 
the Kenny Huffman Memorial Tennis Tournament. Yes. When did you start that? Well, he died in August, and I actually started that in September. I, I was, I couldn't. So that helped you keep going. It sure did. <laughs> right. Gave you purpose. Keep his name alive. And it's been going on for, what, 36 years? Yes. My goodness. Good for you. 36 years. And you've developed a scholarship fund as well. Yes. And also the uh, tennis courts at the college uh, changed the name to the Kenneth Huffman Memorial Tennis Courts. Well, his name will live on forever. (laughs) Fantastic. Yes. And this year, we're giving away a scholarship to a graduating senior in the 15th region uh, who wants to play tennis to a 2009-2010 graduating high school senior in the 15th region in getting an education while playing college tennis. So the proceeds of your book continue to go to the fund, the Memorial Fund? This year, we're we're giving it to a graduating high school senior but uh, they're also, as soon as the college, this, this past year, the college had to drop tennis due to the uh, economy. Uh, I've talked to the past president at the college and the new president at the college. They're trying to start back the tennis program within the next two years. As soon as they start it back, we're going to start back giving money back to the college and also to a graduating senior in the 15th region so we can do two scholarships. We made more money this year than we have in, I'd say, 20 years, even with the economy like it was at the tournament. Sue, how do we get your book? You can get our book, my book, several ways. Uh, You can go on the Internet and look at the Author House website and buy it through Author House. Um, it's supposed to be, uh, um, I think that's the best way you can get it. Authorhouse.com. Right. I'm sure you can order it through any of the online bookstores like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Right. But I think the best way to get it is through authorhouse.com. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, Sue, of a very... Exciting, but also obviously challenging, very challenging story, and the challenge lives on, but you're doing so many good things and keeping his name alive. We salute you. Thank you. And congratulations on publishing your book. That's a great accomplishment. I'm so thankful um, to the Lord for helping me make it through all those years. (laughs) Right. I really am. And uh, I had such good support from um, Kenny's family. Great. Uh-huh. And uh, from my family. That was such a big help. Well, thanks again for being on Author Talk. You're welcome. That was Sue Huffman Stanley. She is the author of her book, A Tennis Love Story. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinoteca, Nicaragua. 
These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits, a slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature, and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's Best Coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Zingo, What is My Color and Flavor? And the author is Joe Starr, and Joe joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joe. Good. How are you today? Doing great. Now, this is a fun kid's story about Zingo the Jelly Bean. Now, why in the world did you create Zingo? Well, I think that uh, Zingo is a little bit of a character that was always in the back of my mind for years. Of course, I was a kid. I'm a little older now. But, uh, I mean, I just love the thought of uh, that name in particular because it had a lot of zing to it. Of course, life has zing to it. Maybe the character has that same little zing in him. And uh, it was kind of a little thought that I had, and uh, I thought that children would go for that particular type of name because that's kind of a play name, Zingo. And a jelly bean. Why did you choose Zingo to be a jelly bean? Well, of all things, I thought that a little candy flavor would add a lot to children's thoughts of, well, hey, this is going to be a fun book, and it's all about my favorite little candy, maybe a jelly bean. <laughs> Yeah, we all love jelly beans. I have oh, to admit, yeah. there's a kid in me that still loves jelly beans well, for some yeah, reason. I don't know yeah, why that. I love them. Yeah. I don't know why that sticks with us. Huh? So I, yeah, I, I think you got something there. I think you've got something going on, Joe. Good. Well, I think I just said I hope it is, and I hope that 
all our listeners that are out there would just like to be able to say, my God, I've got to get my hands on that book. And they could be read to all their grandchildren and all the little children around the neighborhood would just love it. Schools would love to probably pick that book up. So tell us, about, with it. tell us about Zingo. Now tell us about his character. What's, what's he like? Well, Zingo is just a happy little type of guy that likes life, wants to play, wants to have fun, but at the same time is serious because he's trying to get to uh, who he is really as not realizing what his color is and his flavor because he's just growing up. So he kind of wants to be able to get to the source of who he really is. And how he fits in, huh? Yeah, yeah he's sort of that little guy that wants to be part of the, the overall picture and wants little friends to play with and really wants to be a great guy. And I think he's got that real personality that's bubbly, can carry himself, and really can mix with everyone. But he has a little trouble in, the, in this book to be able to get to the end result. But boy, good old Zingo comes through every time. You say, I've always had a strong understanding of a child's feelings and thoughts. Yeah, well, do you know, it's like, uh, I think that in children there's so much beauty in the sense that the innocence, the approach to life, not affected by a lot of elements around as we get older and get a little distorted in our thinking, a child's mind is perfect. It's so beautiful. I never forgot that. I think I'm still probably a bit of a kid inside or a child inside me has never left because that was really the, actually one of the best parts of our lives or my life in particular. And I think that in little Zingo, my little personality kind of comes out in the sense that maybe that was me a little bit too. And children always learn best when they're having fun. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, today in a lot of countries around the world and not so much the states and Canada, I would say, but other places, uh, children are, you know, regimented to the point that things happen. It has to happen at a young age. I think that with children, just like reading the Zingle book, it should be taken with a little bit of humor, lots of fun, and then learning while you're having fun. So tell us about some of Zingo's friends. Let's, let's just pick out one, and we'll talk about one of his friends. Well, one of his friends, like Zingo has a lot of friends, and most of his friends, of course, are jelly bean friends. But along the way in the book, of course, he meets other things, like cows, like flowers. They all become his friends. So in other words, everything around us can be our friend. That's the way Zingo sees it. And he has a lot of friends. But he'll pick one in particular, too, that he would like to call his real buddies or play friends. But Zingo is friends with everyone. You have a, a message, you have a theme that you're trying to help children learn. Is there something about life you're trying to teach? Well, yes, I, I think that in that, in particular, we're all striving. And again, when your color and flavor is just a way of getting around things to be able to let children know in general that uh, they have to really find who they are. Like They can be told who they are and what country they're living in and what language they speak. But inside, each little child has to find himself. And that is the approach that we've used in this book, even though we're using color and flavor as the element. It can be anything within the child that they're looking for. Maybe they're striving for something or they're trying to understand something. Well, this is the story about opening up Zingo's character and his approach to his dilemma. So everyone has a little problem that way or... Uh, trying to understand life, not so much a problem, it's understanding life. 
And this kind of zingo kind of brings out that little part of it. And your title gives some kind of of reflection upon that we're all a little different. I mean, you know, what is my color and flavor? We're all different in this life, and some of us are even different colors. We come from different walks of life. We're in different circumstances. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that particular element right there, like I say, the color of skin, I mean, relates to a color of jelly beans, whether they be, you know, red, blue, green, or orange, or whether it be black or white or yellow. We're all different, and it's finding out the meaning of that color, too, and accepting it and being happy with it. That's the thing, and Zingo is the same way. He may like to be blue, but he's red, but he's got to be happy, and he realizes he's happy that he's red. Does he have any jelly bean friends that are a certain color that he likes more than oh, another color? That's the whole thing about Zingo. Zingo, if, if, if this particular book, of course, we hope sells and gets out there, Zingo has right now in the background a lot of other books written, of course, by myself, but he has play friends, and each play friend is a jelly bean in particular, and they're different colors, and they go by different names, and that's the surprise, and Zingo has this in the makings when he lets the next book come out, or thereafter, there's going to be a multitude of play friends with similar names. It's going to be Bingo. It could be S with Cinco. It could be anything. So all those alphabetical friends could be coming, and Zingo's looking forward to putting that together. You say Zingo Jelly Bean, small in stature, but strong on courage to find himself. So what is in your story about courage? Well, I think it's just him progressing, uh, getting lost and finding his way. He's got to stand up. He's got to keep going. It's, it's like he doesn't stop. And I think that's the thing for children in particular, and even adults read it sometimes, can get things out and relate to their lives. You don't stop. It's consistent. You have to keep going on. And Zingo has that character that he doesn't stop looking for that color or flavor, which could be other things in life, but relating back to Zingo, he doesn't stop. He's persistent, he keeps going on, and that's that sense of courage within all of us. Zingo has it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have it too. And the book is filled with great illustrations of Zingo and his friends. Yes. Uh, Like I say, all the illustrations and that, a lot of them, of course, were my idea. Not that I'm taking full credit, but the publisher worked along with us on it. And um, we had it drawn up. All the friends in that and characters that illustrated there are things that any child would normally see, you know, around their home or out in the country by some farm area or whatever, and they all play a part in making Zingo uh, successful in his, you know, goal to be able to find out what his color and flavor are. I think I think it's nicely put together, and I think it has a lot of draw and a lot of excitement for people to be able to read and look at, and I think they can apply it to their lives in a lot of cases. So this first book about Zingo's travels through life is focused on what theme? Just the first one, just to give us a general theme. Yeah, when you mean theme, uh, just draw that out a little bit. Well, and, what, uh, what he's doing, you know, what, he, what the book is about, you know, we're, you're introducing Zingo. Yes. Well, well, Zingo, like I say, what he's doing in, in this particular book, uh, like I mentioned before, like that he's trying to strive to be able to get answers to, to who he is, 
basically as to color and flavor in his particular case because he's a jelly bean. But I mean, I think the whole theme is. But is this like a one act play? Every story will have a little plot to it and a little. Yeah, well, like I just said, I mean, you know, the plot and the theme and everything put together the way I did it was kind of open uh, for interpretation for everybody to take out what they felt that they could get out of it. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't follow a complete path in that. I uh, brought my childhood thoughts back out, maybe threw them all together in one particular character. And it's kind of uh, mixed, but it's basically he's the main character, and the others, uh, you know, just fill in around uh, him to make contact with others along the way. And as a grandfather, you've been telling Zingo stories a lot? Well, actually, uh, you see, uh, now as a, you know, having five wonderful grandchildren and another one on the way, uh, uh, you know, I, I can have constant uh, stories to be able to talk to my grandchildren about, and they bring out the child. A character to me even more so. And with Zingo, they seem to be very enthused with Zingo and with the thought that there could be more stories about Zingo. So with their enthusiasm and backing, it has me thinking that, you know, that this little character can be a good constructive storyteller in books and stories down the road based on Zingo as the main character. Any concluding thoughts you'd like to share with us about Zingo and his story? Well, I would think that uh, to conclude everything, uh, I'd like to bring up the fact that, uh, you know, children are beautiful, that Zingo has that character within him to make contact with young minds and to be able to get them thinking about their lives, but at the same time giving them some fun. Life is full of fun, and Zingo is the fun guy on the block. He's all fun, but he's serious about life. And he listens to what he has to be doing in his life. But Zingo is, a, is, a, is an exciting character. I like him anyhow. I think he's cute. I think he, the kids would even find him cuddly. And uh, God knows, uh, maybe there'll be more stories along the way based on Zingo, which I hope there will be. Joe, tell us how to get your book, Zingo, What is My Color and Flavor? Well, as far as... Getting the book, uh, I mean, uh, we are just in the process of putting that together right now as to the availability of that particular book, uh, how distribution is going to be held, uh, what stores will be carrying it. So we really haven't finalized all that at the moment. But it's available through AuthorHouse.com right now? AuthorHouse.com, yes, that's the uh, big thing, and they're the ones that will have that particular book available. And probably can be ordered online through any of the... Online yes, bookstores. Yes. yes, I would think that that should be arranged now. I, I'm just in the final uh, approach of that particular aspect of the book. But uh, I know that uh, the name Zingo is easy to remember. There's no big long name about what is my color and flavor. You don't worry about that so much. It's Zingo is the character, and that's the book that everyone should be looking for. And do you have a website about Zingo? Not. Uh, I haven't set it up uh, for myself yet, um, uh, you know. Uh, like you said, uh, you know, being uh, a grandfather yet, I mean, there's a lot of things about the computer we're on to, but we could be <laughs> a little more advanced. But we're, 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 we're kind of working on that right now. Well, Joe, thanks for being on Author Talk. Sounds like an exciting child story. Well, Steve, it was wonderful talking to you and all the people out there. I hope that they really take a moment and uh, try to look at this aspect of Dingo because I think it would add so much to their little book with their children in particular. 
Thank you, Joe. That was Joe Starr. He is the author of his book, Zingo, What is My Color and Flavor? You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on Toginet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Mars to Marceline, In Search of Disney. And the author of the book is Eleonora Duvivier. And Eleonora joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Eleonora. Hi, how are you? Well, this is a very, very different look. A kind of probing, in-depth look at Disney in a way that I have never considered. Uh, it's We're looking intellectually, emotionally. Tell us why you did this. Why did you write the book? Well, I've, I've always uh, been very interested in Disney. Since I was a little girl, I always loved Disney. And uh, Disney creation had very uh, many important moments in my life that it acted like as a rescue and uh, also my natural intellectual curiosity. So I wanted in this book to find out what Disney is really for me and also what Disney is on a collective level, what, what Disney is for everybody. Therefore, the, the element of uh, personal questioning and search is woven with the philosophical questioning, if you want. 
Well, it's easy to see Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all these characters that he created this whole new world. But what you're saying that there's much more than what we're just seeing on the surface. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I think that uh, with animation, Disney invented. I mean, everybody knows that that he invented he invented uh, an art form that is typically American, even though he wasn't the inventor of animation itself, but he developed it. And I see in Disney animation, I see a very strong psychological support, like a parental support, and also a metaphysical support to, to human psyche. And because, uh, uh, metaphysically speaking, Animation is, is like they say, Disney animation is an illusion of life. So it is a life with, with its own autonomy. And it's a life in which everything makes sense. So it's life of pure, of pure meaning. And that is very supporting. And also, and psychologically, uh, it has the side of authority, of discipline, the message of discipline, which is like the paternal role in, in, in the human psyche, and also the side of entertainment, color, sweetness, joy, and fun, which is, which is like mother's pure love. So I think it's very, very wholesome, and uh, that's why it's not just entertainment, but it's also healing. Disney seemed to be always trying to teach children, wasn't he? He was always trying to help them see life as it really is, even though he was using these imaginary characters. Yes, yes. He also he always sent a message of integrity, a message of uh, uh, good, good, good over evil, and uh, and 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 also, uh, you know, some of his stuff is education educational, and uh, he also managed to merge uh, education with fun, which is something that I find is a growing tendency in modern life with computers, with games, with, with, with all that. And because children learn best when they're relaxed and having fun? Oh, yeah, exactly. There is no need for this difference, for this for decision between between fun and duty at all. I mean, the ideal thing is what is, is if duty and, and, and entertainment are at one, like love and pleasure, like, you know, all these things that unfortunately are separated. And uh, I think Disney is a great uh, precursor of that. So was he trying to help us stay more united in our American culture, or was he kind of leading, do you think, in a way, in our American culture? I think he was leading, and I think it goes beyond. He goes beyond, obviously, American culture. He appealed to the, to the universal imagination. But it's typically American. Disney's typically American in the sense that he had no... He had no limits of respecting tradition. He, he renewed everything in an American way. And in the fact that he used artifice, uh, because, you know, cartooning is totally 
dependent on tech on technology. He used technology to transmit a lot of warmth, a lot of color, a lot of of, of fantasy. He he inaugurated the immediacy of fantasy because until until Disney animation, fantasy was something that wasn't visible. So it it, it wasn't visible. It, it had to be imagined, but it wasn't visible. He put together technology and fantasy and poetry and entertainment. You have in your first chapter, uh, Mickey, Mystical Disney, as you title it, and you say there that Walt Disney uh, made this declaration, a famous one, I hope we don't lose sight of one thing. It was all started by a mouse. (laughs) Why, Why do you think he stayed focused on that? It's because uh, the, when he was pushing Mickey, he was at a very difficult part of his life, of his career. Uh, the studio was practically going bankrupt, like actually many times it happened, but that was the crucial moment that Disney, uh, Disney made a few cartoons, uh, his team, he, he and his team, a few cartoons of Mickey Mouse without having any commission or, or anybody wanting them, but he had a lot of faith and put sound for the first time to a cartoon and, uh, and, and went to New York, and, and after a, a tremendous struggle, he managed to bring the mouse to the eye of the public, and ever since, he started being able to do the things that he he really wanted to do with animation. So Mickey kind of saved the studio, saved his work, and he was eternally grateful to Mickey. Some people <laughs> say that he had a, a some sort of reverence, right? You know. Yes, and you, and you know, when you look at those early black and white cartoons of Mickey that were so simplistic. It's yeah. amazing, but but the character was there. I guess the, yeah. the this this uh, very uh, simplistic animation back then compared to obviously what we have today, but very very simplistic and not very smooth uh, working and kind of yeah. jerky. And yet Mickey had that that uh, what do you call it? What kind of a personality did Mickey have? Yeah, he had a personality. Mickey Mickey also inaugurates uh, a, cart- a personality in cartooning because until then the characters were, you know, they, they they were more like an excuse for comedic tricks. And like Disney say, they even they run against the current. They slow down the tempo to let Mickey em- emote. So Mickey was the first personality. In animation, with Mickey Disney established personality over everything. I say it's mystical because because it's like so over matter. Because in 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 the in in animation, everything is possible. But he used all these possibilities to to the development of personality. It's it's all around personality. So in the beginning, Mickey was a, a bit more. How should I say? Some people think that he was even cruel, but I wouldn't say that. I think Mickey was just, uh, he was just showing all the possibilities that, that of animation. And he was, he was always very clever. He was always 
very, you know, like Disney, Disney says in his speech, a little fellow doing the best he can. He was trying to find himself. Mickey was trying to find his identity in those early days. Yeah, but already kind of knowing he, he had one to find, that's, that's the big difference. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Disney knew it was there. He just had to, uh, just had to isolate it and then, I guess, expand on it. Yes, exactly, yes. Of course, when we think of Disney, we think much more than Mickey Mouse and other characters because we have Disneyland. And, oh, yeah. And Disney yeah. World. And, of course, that is a whole different uh, sphere of learning and uh, and even, and, and, and even uh, a, a, a philosophical experience. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Because, you know, you talk about in your second chapter, you talk about the ride Mission Space at yeah. Epcot. Now, tell us about your feelings about that ride and, and uh, what... Disney was trying to do. Yeah, well, that ride is, of course, uh, it, it, it's post Walt Disney. It, I, I think it was inaugurated in 2003, but I thought it was typically Disney. It was the Disney essence in the sense that that the ride reconciles uh, heterogeneous extremes which is something that Disney did all his life, and Disney himself was a man of extremes. He put together artists and nature, uh, fake and reality, past and future. People say he had a, a foot in the past and another one in the future. And so in this ride, what, what I found amazing was that the ride grants you a feeling of spiritual ascendancy through guts and sight, it, it's simulation at, 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 at the maximum because you are inside a capsule, capsule like an astronaut, and uh, and you see through a video you're taking off and uh, going beyond gravity. Now the way they do it is that the thing spins, and it, it spins so fast that you can't tell it is spinning. So it feels like you are at a very high speed, you know, especially because you have to look at that video that shows like it was a window, you know, that shows all, all the smoke and all the, the blue sky and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and, and that, that uh, feeling in your stomach plus the beauty of the, of the video that you are seeing gives you this feeling of spiritual ascendancy. And and that's that's why I said it, it it is through guts and sight. It, it's a physical experience of spirit. I called it because of that. So the right puts together extremes that are you know apparently irreconcilable, which is a spiritual feeling and uh, induced by technology. You know, induced via your body. You know. Now, there is a Walt Disney Family Museum opening in October? Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, Disney's, uh, Disney's family wanted to bring the person of Walt Disney to the public because 
you know, many people nowadays, many young people don't even know who Walt Disney was. They think it was a brand, you know, it's a logo or something. And uh, it's part of, it should be part of the national culture. And uh, so they made this museum that is opening in October, uh, concentrating on Walt Disney and I mean, obviously, his work, he was a workaholic. You can't separate him from his work, but uh, they say it's very, you know, it's very personal around Walt Disney. Now, Justin, we have about two minutes left. Mm-hmm. Tell us about superheroes and how you see Disney with superheroes, because that is a huge part of our culture. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, well, Disney... With the storytelling rides of Disneyland and with uh, animation, too, he he passes on a heroic sense. I am defining <clears throat> heroism there as a hero is somebody that has a mission. So in the life of a hero, nothing is gratuitous. Things happen because of a reason. And uh, so that the... So Disney has this heroic dimension in the sense that the animation ends well, or even if it doesn't, even if it didn't end well, everything in it makes sense. It is contingency free, and uh, the same with the storytelling rides of Disneyland. Once you are in a story, uh, in a ride, you become a character of Walt Disney, a character of the ride. And you have this feeling of being chosen, of things happening right, of, of everything being contingency-free. And, uh, and, and, and that's what uh, the mission of a hero is. And uh, so superheroism, super I brought in to make this parallel between, between the, the Disney mystical dimension and the mystical dimension that I think there is in in heroism. Well, you have a very unique view of Disney. It's it's uh, as you say, you're trying to search on a personal level, uh, uh, but as well as on the collective and his impact and beneficial influence on culture, on our psyche, and on interaction with technology. So thank you, thank you for sharing your book with us, Eleonora. We really appreciate you being on Author Talk. Oh, thanks to you. It's my pleasure. And where do we get your book? Um, you can get it uh, online. Either uh, go to Author House or Amazon.com. And, and there are also other, other uh, you know, other places that sell it, too. But there are many places on, on, online. And you can Inside. order it online, definitely. Yes, yes you can, yes, yes. Well, thanks again, Eleonora. Well, thanks to you. Have a good day. Thank you. That was Eleonora Duvivier, and she is the author of her book, From Mars to Marceline, In Search of Disney.